0: Looks like we uh, the updating of our Mac laptops means that we are imageless today, but that is all right. Um, so I think we should just jump right in. We did a lot of images last time, and that gives us enough to work on. And the point is, of course that the images that we're focusing on are not just the constant images being spat up on the screen, but the images that are around us. So I think this is actually a good problem to have. Um, The fact that I can't show you a bunch of additional images means that we'll be dependent upon um, the images that we're facing. And this also means that we will be able to focus on a few of them in our last session. that is the things that we don't get to see today. But the goal of this, these three sessions is to unpack ordinary devotion to Mary. Remember the last time what we did was we talked about epiphany, we talked about the radiant light that actually shows up in our collects, this idea of the radiant light that Christ is shining in our hearts, And that actually is, that's a Marian idea, right? In the sense Christ is dwelling within us, radiating. And in these ancient icons of Mary, some of which are mildly reflected in our space, some of which are reflected in the images we have downstairs, Jesus is radiating within her, and our colleagues invite us for him to radiate within us as well. And so to give you an example of one of those, when we look at the time that we're unpacking and marinating in an epiphany over and over again, may Christ shine in our hearts. One of the nativity colics is may we accept Jesus into our hearts. May he have a mansion within us. So the claim was made based upon this Alchin book, this wonderful, elusive figure for whom great Orthodox and Roman Catholic dignitaries arrived for his funeral, saying the eastern and western flanks of the church, essentially acknowledging the legitimacy and glory of the Anglican tradition of Mariology. He wrote this book called The Joy of All Creation. And he says the uniqueness of this particular tradition's dedication and devotion to Mary is joy and poetic beauty. Joy and poetic beauty. And so what we essentially tried to do last time is we said, okay, we can fight with Catholics, right, which is kind of boring at the end of the day. They have a particular understanding of the Virgin Mary that has been enshrined at the same level of Trinitarian reflection. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not exactly negotiable in any Christian tradition, This is the bedrock of truth. And they have elevated particular Marian doctrines, most importantly, the immaculate conception of Mary. She was conceived without original sin from the moment of her conception. That is defined infallibly in 1854. You've probably heard of the infallibility of the pope. This actually is retroactively um, (laughs) added in order to buttress that definition in 1854. So Pius IX is like, not only am I going to say Mary was born without original sin from the moment of her conception, but I'm going to declare, or a Roman Catholic would say, um, formally articulate something that has always been the case, that popes are infallible when they teach from the throne of Peter. And so... He looks back on what he said in 1854, and he said, that cannot ever be changed. It cannot be wrong. She is conceived without original sin from the moment of her conception. And then the second time that that happened, it's only happened two times in Roman Catholic history. What was the second time? Right after World War II, the world is is, um, still grieving that profound agony in the so many people who died, And the Assumption of Mary is declared in 1950. So the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. So the first time that we taught this class, long ago, maybe some of you were here, um, we in some senses said, okay, here's what the Roman Catholics say, and let's pose ourselves for, against... Where do we go in a different direction? And that's wonderful, and we can understand those differences. The Orthodox Church, of course, have differences as well. They disagree with the way the Catholics define the Immaculate Conception. They say, hey, we weren't invited to the council. Uh, I I didn't see an invite, right? But there was no real concern about what the Eastern Orthodox teach. At least by the time you got to 1950... When the Catholic Church declared that, they need a little more room to acknowledge Orthodoxy. And so we can look and say, okay, here's what the, the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches have said about her. But all of a sudden, in the middle of this, the Anglican tradition emerges and says, do we have something to offer as well? And that's what Alchin represents. So I think it's wonderful that Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox dignitaries came to acknowledge the importance of that. Oh, yeah, you should have just converted to one of our traditions. Why did you bother? No. They said, you had something to offer. And that emphasis, again, on joy and poetry, the poetry of John Donne, right? The poetry and the, um, when you're not uh, just defining doctrines, You're allowed to ruminate poetically. It's not that doctrines don't matter in the Anglican tradition. Oh, they matter. But the emphasis is on the enfleshment of God, the incarnation. And so we said, let's not just wrangle with the bigger traditions. Let's mine into our own is the goal as we go deeper in Marian ordinary devotion. Ordinary devotion. And the challenge that was made in these many debates that happened at the Anglican Roman Catholic International Consortium, Architret, they all got together and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And what happens in these formal debates, when dignitaries get together in some summit in Canterbury or Rome, what happens is always this. They've read these documents. They say, okay, we punt to the lady. We punt to you now. Your turn. All right, you got to figure this out. It's got to happen on the ground. And that's what we're after, on the ground. What would it mean? And as we plumb that mystery, what does it mean to think about the Virgin Mary from that focus on poetry, symbol, from that focus on joy? We looked around our room and we said, is she already here? And we have Jesus meets his mother at the cross. We have a Pieta. And we have northern light. Northern light. This elusive woven virgin. Mary with a dove. The image is known as Our Lady of Peace. The image actually emerged in World War II in the 40s before the war was over, this particular image, Our Lady of Peace, it has an interesting Roman Catholic devotion that goes way back but if you you look up Our Lady of Peace and the churches dedicated to that in Italy that are specifically Roman Catholic, they don't look like our Mary. They look different. And one of the great things about their um, not being a slide <laughs> is that we can bring her down. And in some senses, isn't that exactly what has happened in Anglican devotion? We have brought her down to our level, in a way. Now, we don't have to sling mud at her to do that, right? You don't have to say, oh, that Immaculate Conception doctrine, she was as sinful as the rest of us. I, 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 when that is claimed and I understand that there are many saying Mary has been too exalted, too exalted. Um, and I, I get that but we have to realize that the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was an English invention. <laughs> we are the ones, the Anglican tradition in England that kept saying that and it really annoyed Thomas Aquinas. He's like no 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 that can't And so that's one of the ironies of Roman Catholic belief in the Immaculate Conception, is that their greatest theologian disagreed with it. And that's why I like to raise my hand. I need some liberty when it comes to uh, Anglican understandings, right, alongside of Catholic and Orthodox understanding. But we bring her down, we're looking at her, we're thinking about the devil. This was woven in the 1940s. And it was, this isn't the only one. There were replicas of this. And it caught the eye of um, those who were found in this space and said, we need her presence around. We need to think about her. So we've got ways to ponder ordinary devotion. Go ahead. Well, I just find an interesting correlation. The
1: Roman Catholic Church used a lot of the uh, pagan uh, female role models ah. when they were converting yeah. the Celts the The ancient um, Scots uh, in that time period, but it wasn't the uh, purity and virtuousness that that drew them from that. It was that nurturing quality, that um, always somebody in your corner, the that more the maternal in in a very paternal. Uh, organization. Right? They recognized even then that they needed this feminine uh, archetype that transcends just the, the everyday.
0: Monica, I think you hit so many notes there that are crucial. You didn't say, oh, it's just paganism lurking in the church. Mm-hmm. This isn't it awful? You intuited it correctly. Now when one of the most boring things to do in the study of early Christianity is to take an image of Isis suckling Horus and put
1: it next to an image of
0: Virgin Mary and Jesus and say, "Ha! Ah, see, it's only the i talking now. Isis is completely different. These pagan goddesses cannot help you. She's a fourth-generation deity. She's not that interesting. There's temple prostitution connected. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and Horus, I mean. I think we said before, um, Jesus is first generation. God from God, Light from Light, And so, yes, there's a, 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 a surface parallel, right? But there's a dramatic shift as a result of the incarnation. But you also pointed out the um, over-paternal emphasis in churches. She has long been a profound correction to that. Not as an add-on, oh gosh, we have this uh, a patriarchal religion, let's uh, sprinkle it in. No! This is saying that the way God came into the world was to humble himself underneath this woman. Not that God is a mother, but that God has a mother, a far more daring suggestion, and that it's not a phantasm or an idea, but an incarnate reality. And so, one of the things that when... certain people see objections to Christianity that are leveled against it, such as um, it isn't good for women. Well, you need to dig into what it was like for women in Greco-Roman society, and you will quickly be disabused with that reality. Women are flocking to the church because they have more rights and more acknowledgement than they did in pagan settings. But as we plumb into that you realize that um, there's no other place to go when it comes to this great dethronement of patriarchy. And when I say patriarchy, I just mean the unjust rule of men over women. I don't think true masculinity is patriarchal. I think that actually is not a of the female, but patriarchy is. And if you wanna dethrone that understanding, let's just say experimentally, you, you think that it's bad to have women unjustly ruling men unjustly ruling over women, one radical answer to that would be to say uh, the salvation of the world is going to happen without male participation. The salvation of the world is going to happen without traditional male insemination. That's what the mystery of the Annunciation is. There's the Holy Spirit. There is her. And Joseph is not involved. And the early Christian fathers, Ambrose, and the great Byzantine thinkers of the East, they said, amazing. Salvation is procured without seed. Without seed. Amazing. Oh, we've got to go back to the mic. Thank you, Denise. Okay. So, so with <laughs> this said, um, so we ponder this mystery, and now we have to drive into this and say, okay, so we take the the doctrine of the virgin birth for granted, but let's unfurl it, let's unpack it. The reason I, and please, um, if if you've been thinking about some of the things we mentioned last time, I welcome you um, to raise your hand as Monica did and and give your questions and thoughts. Um, I might be going down, uh, banging on an open door when I I want to give you uh, uh, the reason to pursue this. Some of you might say, I want to go deeper into this. I I don't have concerns. But if you do have concerns, Let us know. We want to unpack our unique Anglican approach to this woman. And when we do so, we have this image. I consider it to be um, speaking on a variety of different levels. We're coming up on the feast of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, of course, is a... um, just like Halloween is a distant echo of this sacred holy feast. And we will be celebrating it in this building on the day. Um, and that is the, the, the feast that prepares us out of the epiphany season moving into Lent. And I think this is connected to that in what way? <laughs> Maybe the people who made Our Lady of Peace who were hoping for the war to end weren't thinking of this. But how is this connected to February 2nd, Groundhog's Day, the feast of the presentation of Jesus in the temple. You know your scriptures. What's the connection? What's she holding? Yeah, that's what poor people brought. She has to make an offering with Joseph, right? And so the offering is the dove. And then Simeon and Anna grab the kid, want the baby smell, right? I want to hold that guy, right? And, and, And she's kind of shocked. But what she would have had is this lower class offering. And so when she's over there, it's almost like she's saying, it's all happening again. I came with my offering. And somebody took my son. (laughs) According to the tradition, Simeon was a a priest. And so uh, she's letting go. She's letting go. And why does she let go? Because he's about to be offered behind that screen, right? And that's not in any way to suggest that we need to add to the incarnation. The Great Reformation debates about this. It's to say that you mystically participate in that one final sacrifice around this altar. And she's saying, I'm with you. I've come with my offering. So what I'm suggesting is when she offers her child, when she offers her boy, as she has to do. That is an intimation of Eucharist, right? Of this feast that we celebrate here. So you're bringing something too. I'm bringing something too. I'm bringing myself to this place. I'm offering myself. And she's saying, I'm in the same boat with you. I've come. And one of the mysteries that I think Anglicans are free to embrace, that Catholics have pointed out, but it's in our tradition as well, is that when something miraculous and wonderful happens to that bread, do we have to define it? Remember, poetry and joy, right? Now, if you, ju- if you say it's just a symbol, I'm with Flannery O'Connor. You know the line, right? If it's just a hymn- symbol, to hell with it, right? I'm not interested. If it's just, oh, no big deal, throw the bread away, it's not. No, it's unbelievably wonderful. Do I need Latin words to define exactly what happens? No. I wish we used quantum physics to understand it. That's what Thomas Aquinas would do if he was alive today. He wouldn't be using Aristotelian science. And so it's unbelievably wonderful. But what definitely happens if Jesus' body is present in a mysterious way, C.S. Lewis said, remember, he didn't say take and understand. He said shut your mouth, take and eat, right? The mystery of Anglican Eucharistic theology that Father Arcadius has written volumes about, literally. He's connected to this, to thinking about this understanding. But what happens is, if somehow Jesus is connected to bread in a mysterious and elusive way, I'm with Peter Martyr Vermili, who said, here's the theology that can unify Roman Catholics and Protestants who are divided over this, the iron in the fire. We've talked about this before. You put an iron in the fire, in the fireplace, and over time, it's going to be so red that you might actually question, is it iron still, or is it fire, right? And he said, that's the Eucharist, and believe it or not, that analogy comes up over and over again, so something is radiating in that bread, just like something God is radiating in us, we are the body of Christ, and we take this into our bodies, and folks, You see the point. That's Marian, right? That is a Marian mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ radiating in your hearts. So that's this understanding, unpacking the beauty of the incarnation. And I remember the moment when Denise, my wife, right here, was pregnant. And she came up to the altar. And... We both received the Eucharist, and we went back to where Christine Durell is sitting, and I sat next to her, and I said, huh, huh, <laughs> huh, something's within me as well, <laughs> right? <laughs> Somewhat, <laughs> right? It's kind of beautiful. And might think, oh, gosh, that's strangely gender-bending. <laughs> it is just Orthodox Christianity, right, that understands gender not to be a construction but a great gift that is not to be trifled with. But nevertheless, all men in this building are called to be brides. Jesus is married. He's not single. He's married to you and me. Right? We are the bride. He's married to the church. right? Yes, he's celibate sexually in that sense, but he is united to us. Now, here's the thing. We want to plumb this depth of Mary as a symbol, and we have a lot of help in doing it. A lot of help. And so one of the things that I suggested last time is that <laughs> you might say, okay, this understanding um, that, that Mary is a symbol of the church, we're thinking about that. And before I get lost in this, I just want to say briefly, I had a conversation with Father Arcadi about this. We want to really unpack for a moment why are we using the, the motif of the northern light. Our church is not oriented. East is that way. Our church is Occident. It is facing west. And so when you think of it that way, liturgical north, if this was east, liturgical north would be over there, and liturgical south would be over there. And there's a great mystical way of thinking about this. So when the sun would rise in the east, it was connected to this great nature mysticism, which is, I mean, How sad that people have to invent it whole cloth and leave Christianity to find nature mysticism. It's embedded in every church that is oriented, right? And so the sun comes up and you're connected to Jesus. Our church is not that way because the people who constructed it did not have those sensibilities, but we do. And so what happens is we think east in that direction, so we have the radiant glow of the sunrise of the new creation. N.T. Wright has been influential in many of our thinking. The new creation in Chicagoland is behind us. And what we'll do next time is we'll look at San Clemente, the church that inspired that mosaic, and we'll see its connection to Mary. That's what I've, I have a big surprise that I'm building to, and I'm not sharing it with you <laughs> yet, because it's connected to Northern Light. And so it doesn't matter that we are orient, we are Occidented, because what happens is we connect these ten lights to the law. The Ten Commandments. I connect. We may not, but I do, right? Uh, I would love to ruminate more upon the symbolism of this building, but unfortunately, usually the time to do that is during the sermon. But unfortunately, the sermons are good, <laughs> and so I can't do that all the time. So I squeeze it in between the hymns. You know, so you have to think about the the beautiful symbolism. And the thing about the light is that that is the light of the law, and the law can only take you so far, right? Now, there's been a lot of people say, oh goodness, you're going to go in an anti-Jewish direction. No, 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 no. That's just, it's part of the New Testament. It's not dishonoring Judaism. It's just saying that law, whatever that law might be, whether it's the law of the treadmill, the law of the diet, the law of popularity, the law of how many books did you sell, whatever the law is, it will crush you. And of course, primarily, it's the Ten Commandments. And it's not that we don't honor them, but when we have those dim lights and we're dependent upon the sunlight coming into this building to illuminate us, there used to be really ugly stained glass windows in this church. It's the first thing we did. We got rid of them. Thank goodness. Is that we're saying we require light from outside ourselves. And so the greatest thing that happens in this building, in my opinion, is during an Easter vigil, when the the church is dark. This, these lights have given out. They can only offer so much. Your ability to fulfill the law on your own. And then the sunrise bursts through the windows. And you sense that's Christianity. Jesus is fulfilling it for you. He is doing it within you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And so I'm going to make a little pivot here. And I'm going to suggest that if we want to hold on to the evangelical doctrine of grace, that Lutheran thrust, that the law cannot help you, Luther just updates that Pauline idea, then this understanding that I mentioned of feeling Christ within me through the Eucharist is the most evangelical thing you could possibly say. Because when we look at images of Mary and think of those images as ourselves at our best, it is saying that Jesus is going to have to do it within me. I cannot do it on my own effort. And so when we ponder Mary in that fashion, all of a sudden, she becomes a symbol of our own soul. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that the historical Mary doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't, you know, we shouldn't do our ancient Near Eastern background study and look at the gospels in the original language but those are historical concerns and they're important but the way the early church immediately began to think about her is as a symbol of your and my soul and as a symbol of the church and that's I think what the Anglican tradition specializes in and as I pondered that as a provocation I gave to you last time thinking about the northern light in that way, thinking about Mary as a mystical picture of the soul. And I, I, and I thought to myself, you know, maybe some people are wondering, you know, is that biblical? That image of um, Mary as exemplifying Christ gestating within you. Mary is a picture of the church. And the only answer I could think of as to whether or not that was biblical, was this. Here's my reply to is it biblical, okay? How much time do you have is the answer. How much time do you have? Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. The idea of Israel as bride. Jeremiah 2 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Hear these spoken to you. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. All through the, the Song of Songs. Has long been interpreted in this symbolic way. That's not the only way you can interpret it. It also, thank goodness, is, shows the, that Christianity and Judaism are not anti erotic. But at the same time, people often look to that as an image of the soul, as an image of Israel. We could go on, but of course, in the New Testament, it doesn't go away, but it is amplified. And it is amplified partly because of the importance of Mary. She maintains that symbolic mantle even while she also is a regular Palestinian woman. It's a fascinating conjunction. So so listen to the way that Paul speaks, which is why I think it's wrong to say that Paul doesn't have a Marian understanding. Listen, 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, he says to the Corinthians, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. (laughs) Right? In Galatians 4, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. She is our mother. So it's not just born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. Instead, it is over. How perfect, how perfect, Monica. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> over and over again, it's this suggestion. Listen to this, Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. Okay, thank you. Paul, for reminding us of what Galatians says. Ah, and then, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. (laughs) We've already talked about Revelation 12, the woman clothed with the sun, as the most immediate presentation of that understanding, but there's all these verses in the New Testament. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And so what I'm saying, and this is what I'd like you to really ponder and consider, she is you, right? Not that you are as important as the Virgin Mary, right? No, that is a unique event, and I don't have to evacuate the historical importance of that to make the symbolic suggestion. But if we're to emphasize poetry and joy, we can think of ourselves in that way. Paul says that he groans in labor because Christ is not yet formed in you. (laughs) And insofar as you ever see me not forgiving and loving and being joyful and calm and at peace, you might say, oh, I am groaning for you, Milliner, because Christ isn't yet formed in you. Go ahead. Magnificat anima mei, my soul magnifies the Lord in Latin. And anima, this soul, I mean, we could go up to town on that understanding. Psychologists will wrench that in all kinds of directions. It's right there. And so what Denise just seems to have suggested is that if you do the daily office, and I'm, I'm, I do the daily office in Advent and Lent, and I'm working on adding it, I love to have my contemplative silent prayer time, but Denise has been goading me. Come on, get the office in there. You got to do your bench lifts, right? You can't just do the cardio, right? Get into it, right? It's great. We might think of that as like contemplative prayer, which is wonderful, might be sort of a version, and then you also have to do the the weightlifting, right? Cardio and weights. Um, So all this to be said, um, she she seems to have just suggested that think about this for a moment. What do you do when you pray the daily office? Soon you will have, of course, memorized the song of Zechariah. John the Baptist saying, I mean, the the statement about John the Baptist, to prepare the way for (laughs) who? For the Lord. And then at the end of the day, Mary says, holding Jesus, my soul magnifies the Lord. And then finally, right before you go to bed, Simeon's like, "Nunc dimittis, let it be." Un- uh, you know, I, I've done it. I've held the baby. That's your day. Prepare the way in the morning for Christ to manifest Himself through love, through the fruits of the Spirit in your life. By four thirty or five, when you pray the evening office, you'll be like, "All right, well, I saw some Christ today. This is great news." <laughs> and then you go to bed. Oh yeah, there it is. Christ is incarnating every single day, and that is not some weird goofball New Age theory. That's just Christian mysticism 101, and mysticism is not some weird side trail. It is desperately necessary if you are to encounter the depths. There's, a, there's, an, there's an old canard right? Oh, mysticism end, begins in mist and it ends in schism. like, come on. <laughs> it may. It can. But Anglican Christianity, and this has been one of the discoveries for me in the last couple years, has an incredible, extraordinary mystical thread. In fact, I like to point out that when Thomas Merton was a four-year-old, Evelyn Underhill had already unpacked this entire Anglican mystical tradition. And before her was Anga, the great bishop, who was once on Time Magazine, um, who who wrote a book, Christian Mysticism, in 1899. She kept it going in the early 1900s. And before that, there was William Law. And we'll talk about him next time. I was stunned to read William Law, who was at the foundation of evangelicalism. He inspired John Wesley. And when William Law got more deep and mystical at the end of his life, Wesley freaked out. <laughs> and, and William Law was right, I assure you. Um, but well, I just want I, I, to listen to this for a moment. So reading through his mystical books, so he's in the 1700s, and he sees rationalism and deism. He knows it's going to completely expire. It's not going to work. And listen to what he says, okay? So this isn't some contemporary interpolation. Listen to these words. You ready for this? There is no possibility of salvation. So he's like, do I have your attention? But in and by a birth, every word is so carefully chosen, of the meek, humble, patient, resigned, Lamb of God in our souls. <laughs> That's a Marian image, right? I'll say it again. There is, this is William Law, 1700s, hugely important Anglican. He actually got exiled from his diocese because he did not subscribe to the shift of monarchies. He, so he's sort of what they call a non-juror. So he could have had privileges. He was basically exiled and he wrote these mystical books, there is no possibility of salvation but in and by a birth of the meek, humble, patient, resigned Lamb of God in our souls, mystically, allegorically, symbolically speaking, that is an analog to the literal incarnation in Mary's womb. This understanding of Mary as the church was essentially forgotten. Why? Because the modern world forgot how to think symbolically. And this building is a tutorial in thinking symbolically again. We don't have to be superstitious about it, right? But also we don't have to be casual about it. Once when Peter was a boy... Uh, but he's still a boy, but when he was a very young boy, he knew something special was going on in the Eucharist. And please, this is a scandalous story, but I will share it anyway. And so he, um, we had, so he, he was really excited. He was getting the Eucharist. He probably was like three, two. Um, and he just um, he got the Eucharist, and it was fine. And we went to Jewel. And I had to go to Jewel for something. It was like a, maybe for house groupers that we had to get something. And he's just looking at me like this, and his, ha- and his hand is, is clasped. And I'm like, what's going on? And I was like, I didn't get it. And, I, and then he just like kind of smiled, and then I said, what's in your hand, Pete? And it was so changed in form <laughs> by, that I didn't know what it was. And so I was just like, why do you hold i like, did he pick it off off the ground, and I just let it go? And then later I realized, oh, it's the holiest jewel in America right there because it was dropped on the ground and it, and, and it broke my heart I'm like oh gosh I would have eaten it but and we don't have to be super you get the idea and I think it's some, some sense of beautiful he knew something beautiful was happening and the Lord has mercy if crumbs fall on the ground but for goodness sakes iron in the fire it's special and it is a Marian symbol of Christ giving you the virtue you need to get through this coming week this is just commentary it is is about to happen. As Annie Dillard famously said, we should have crash helmets and safety belts for worship because of the intensity of what is going on. And you might say, yeah, I don't notice that every week. Neither do I. And the Lord, thank goodness, has mercy on those of us who are not fully awake in that sense. But... A Marian symbolic view of ourselves participating in the mystical body of Christ gestating within us might move us in the direction of taking this church so much more seriously in the mystery of what happens in here as we bring it out into the wider world. We've got uh, two minutes, three, well, a few minutes for, for uh, further questions. What I will do is, like I said, I've been building up to this discovery made this summer um, in regard to the Church of San Clemente and the Marian connections to that space. Um, But if you have any thoughts, remarks, or questions, I hope this is something that you're able to unpack. And I hope you feel confident. Like William Law, amazing Marian reflection at the height of the secular enlightenment, right? Saying, you're really missing the boat, all you rationalists. Here's the mystical Christianity. It's in his book called Spirit of Love, which is a stunning masterpiece that I don't see a lot of people talking about all the time. So it's like, oh, we don't have any of that in Anglicanism. I'm going to go find it in another tradition. Oh, we've got it. We've got it. Go ahead. I find it so fascinating that
1: all of those authors... I find it fascinating that all of those authors were leading up to this northern light depiction. Um, When Christianity was first coming about, they used the churches and the stained glass to uplift and represent that mystery that they couldn't read at that time because of illiteracy. But in the 1950s, all of those people were literate. And so it, it changes point. that landscape, and, and makes me think about how the world had to be prepped or ready. Yes. At, before they saw it, and then all of a sudden, this shows up and and illuminates that piece uh. all over again.
0: And Monica, that is such an important statement because one of my favorite lines is from an art historian named E.H. Gombrich, and he said, "Yes, um, books are the pictures of the illiterate." Right. But sometimes, I'm sorry, images are the, are the books for the illiterate, right? But he says sometimes they're necessary for those who've read too much, right? These pictures are not just for the kids, which is why I pointed out all those. I'm glad we have those nativity cratias, but we need her up here as well. We need to be uh, connected to Christ in ways that transcend the rational processing powers that we have. We'll have time. I'll do the big culmination after our annual meeting where I'll show you this um, unexpected image of Mary in prayer and that we discovered at San Clemente, which, strangely enough, was on the northern side of the church. Thanks for being here, everybody.